I mean, I grew up when triathlon was truly the Wild West, that we barely had course marshals out there. We had to follow little duct tape arrows on the road. We swam in 50-degree water or eight-foot waves rolling in. So I'll try to push things as far as possible, but then you just have a gut feeling of, you know, this is the line, and if you cross the line, things aren't going to be safe anymore. 45 degrees, that was well over the line. But really, it's just trusting your gut. It's having that experience of having done it long enough that you just know. That was Lance Panagudi of Without Limits Productions, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Jess. I'm the host of this audio adventure, and I'm fired up to have you with me today. Here's the deal. The YT community is getting really strong. It's getting really strong and the momentum is fierce. And I just want to let you know that we are all in. So we're psyched to have you guys along for the ride. We're getting new listeners every week. Thank you all for sharing the show. We are so grateful for this amazing tribe and the podcast medium, like this medium so that we can all connect with the stories of people looking, finding, and living their purpose. Like, do you understand how powerful this is? Do you understand that we're having an impact in the world? And when I say we, I'm not talking about BJ and Clark and I, I'm talking about all of us because we are talking and we are listening and we're engaging in subjects like fear and we're doing it openly and we're doing it all the time and we're creating dialogue on how to believe in ourselves more and how to love ourselves more and take better care of ourselves more and not be so reactive anymore and that anything is possible, that there are no limits but this way of life requires immense bravery. And here's the deal with that. Like there's no fretting because luckily it's a quality that's innate within all of us. And we're seeing it every week through the stories of our guests. So let's continue this momentum. Keep talking about the show. Keep sharing pieces that you're taking away with others, right? Because the chances are that if you can benefit from it, somebody else is going to benefit from it as well. So Every time you tune into the YTP and you tune out from gossipy politics, negative self-talk, mindless chatter, or the like, you're helping further the mission to create a better world. You guys, this is the real deal, and we are uncovering it within people every week. It's so freaking cool. So thank you. Everyone who reaches out to us to share their story of forward motion to living a more high-vibe life, like thank you so much. Those are the signs that keep us going, you guys, believing in ourselves and keep us full steam ahead with our purpose. So thank you. And Lance, our guest today, knows everything about going full throttle on the gas pedal of life. With $600 combined in their bank accounts, Lance and his brother Tony put their inspiration into action after a stern talking to from their sister with some poster board, a marker, and some orange cones that they used as fencing. The Summer Open Triathlon officially launched Without Limits Productions. Named after a certain runner who had a movie of the same name, Lance appreciated Prefontaine's rogue and rock star style, and knowing very well that his venture could fail, he strutted himself onto the Colorado Triathlon race directing scene, and he has never turned back. There's no way he could have. There have been too many open doors and invitations to progress and grow. He could not ignore those. He began racing triathlon in his early teens, and he is a native New Englander, which is super close to our hearts being New Englanders ourselves. 
He came to know of Boulder, Colorado through Outside Magazine, and during a college visit, he raced the Boulder Peak Triathlon, one of the most iconic triathlons in the country and one that is steeped in unique character from its large prize purse, well-appointed professional race, and the infamous old stage climb. Boulder Peak is a rite of passage for all triathletes, so if you have it on your list, or if you have a vision board, or any urge to visit Boulder, Colorado, do it. Do it in July and race this epic Olympic distance try. Before getting into race directing, Lance's triathlon life first took him to the professional level, side by side with his close buddy and victor of this year's peak, Cameron Dye. These two worked their butt offs in sport and life, racing for prize money any chance they could while working odd jobs like babysitting to pay the bills. Living a dream is nothing that Lance is unfamiliar with, but what did catch his attention was the inner workings of the races he would compete in. He wanted to know more about what went on behind the scenes in order to pull off a well-oiled multi-sport event. The curiosity led him to where he is today, sole owner of one of the largest race directing companies in the country. We recorded this interview outside of our friend's palatial home in Boulder, so you may hear some Rocky Mountain breezes and some high-altitude birds singing in the background, but to me, like, that's just frosting on this cake of beauty, so... Enjoy, you guys. Lance is so well-spoken and articulate. His perspective is insightful and unique, and we thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our chat with one of triathlon's best behind the scenes and a man that sees no limits, Lance Panaguti. We started when we started our tour, when we were packing up and leaving. About a month before. Leaving Boston. Oh, that's right. Yeah, about a month before, like... Getting rid of everything we own, selling our house, like finishing up our work, like everything. We thought we'd start a podcast. And I thought I would figure out how to do sound engineering. It was crazy. (laughs) As a yoga teacher. It was crazy. But it was, yeah, I used all my yoga skills to learn how to do it because it was just like literally sitting at the kitchen table for at least like probably 48 hours just watching YouTube to be like, Tutorials. I'm it's not. It's amazing what you can learn on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do seriously. all our t shirt designs because when we started, we didn't have a single dollar to pay anyone else. But I learned Illustrator from YouTube. It just takes patience. Like, you oh, just, yeah. If you're a self learner. Like, I was like, know. I knew I had the creativity in here. Right. It's just getting what's in here actually on a computer screen. Yeah. Because Illustrator is intimidating yep. alone, like just as it is. But I don't want to. I know, but I, I, lo- love, I, love, I love where it. we're going like right away with this conversation because it was like I sat down and I'm like, what? It would have been so easy for me to be like, I'm not doing the podcast. We don't have money to hire someone to do to do the post-production. And I'm not going to do it because I'm a yoga teacher. And BJ's not going to do it because he just wants to train all the time. And, yeah. you know, but I sat down and, and I used like all my yoga skills and I just took a breath. And I was like, all right, so where do I start? And things that used to be super overwhelming to me, like now I just go, okay, where do I start? And somehow like you get that, you find the starting point. And that mm-hmm. might take... A while you know you don't know and then you take the next step and the next step and the, the next doors step. just kind of open up yeah exactly it's kind of like, it's kind of like triathlon you know like it's at least for me I mean some people a lot now just jump into like Ironmans but I did the progression and I got to the half Ironman and, and I remember being like oh fuck like I can't just be a half Ironman like, I can't be a half yeah. <laughs> I gotta be a full so Anyway, all At least right. you did the progression. I can't tell you how many people are like, oh, I'm just going to do an Ironman. Like, I've never done a sprint. It's 
Like, don't you want to know what it's like to run off the bike? Yeah. yeah. You're going to have such a horrible first Ironman experience. <laughs> and then sure enough, they finish it. They do it. It was 10 times harder than they expected. And then they never do another triathlon again. Yeah. What's, yeah. You, what's your take on that? Like we've interviewed Barry and some Olympians and things like that. And we always kind of get everybody's take on this idea of people now just jumping into Ironmans from the couch. I, I think people are more ADD than ever. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I just think that... People look at triathlon and they look at the numbers and they say, oh, the sport's depressed because numbers aren't growing the way they grew from 2002 to 2014. And then they look at road cycling and road cycling participation numbers are down and rock and roll numbers are down. And they're like, endurance sports are, they're, they're caving. And I was like, no, triathlon numbers are great, but Ironman numbers are not. Mm. It's like, it's two different sports within a sport. There's Ironman and there's everyone else. And the Ironman part of the population is made up of a lot of people that are bucket listers. And I just see it as you had this baby boom generation that they turned 50 in about 2000 and they all had to do an Ironman. They had to check it off the list, the life goals. So it was a huge segment of the population, a big bubble that worked their way through from 2000 to 2014. And now they're 65 years old. They did it, they checked it off and they've moved on with their lives. And there's not a big population boom behind them that have gotten to that point where they have the disposable income. But what we're seeing, like Boulder Peak, our sprints, it's a lot of people that it's a lifestyle for them. They're not triathletes necessarily as a lifestyle, but they're endurance, healthy minded individuals that I'm going to do a half marathon this year and I'm going to do two sprint triathlons and I'm going to do an obstacle race. So our numbers have been great. Like they've got the freedom to mix it up and have some fun. You're so, oh my God, yeah, but I they love stay, that perspective. They, but they stay in it. Yeah. They don't check it off and just move on to something else. For them, it's a lifestyle and they're gonna do one year, two triathlons, another year, three triathlons. Yeah, because I feel with the Ironman, it's like an all, like you, you get that eight month training or six month training block and you're like all in and you get it done and then it's like, you're, there's now like, what? There's kind of a depression after. Yeah. It's like, what do I do now? Right, and you've probably, most typically overtrained and you've gotten to the experience and you're done and now you're like ah, i don't know if i'm into this anymore i don't know if i want to commit all this time <laughs> mm-hmm. to it and they may move away from the sport whereas what you're saying it makes total sense i think the community has changed when i started racing in the early 90s doing the cape cod series i mean people literally they were just triathletes or they were just runners or just road cyclists like that's what they identified with they didn't dabble in other sports and, and now i don't not sure if it's a millennial thing, but people are dabblers because they don't want to feel like they're missing out on anything. They see, oh, that obstacle race is cool, or people are throwing color on themselves. That's cool. Right. There's so many different ways for us to move our bodies. And if you just maintain a fit lifestyle, you can, I think I'm moving into a life. You are. I'm you, totally you moving into it. that. Yeah. Yeah. Where I don't, ah, the time for me when I was just like full on in the Ironman scene, like it made so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. It really, and it, it, for my own personal growth, like really gave me thousands of hours to get a really good look at who I was and how I wanted to spend my time and who I wanted to spend it to and with and what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I feel like I've, I feel like I'm kind of like wiping my hands a little bit to it and, and shifting. And, uh, but, I, but I'm not an all or nothing 
girl. Like, that's not me. So yeah. I can, like I was saying to you, BJ, like after doing the peak, I'm like, yeah, like I'm not going to not be a triathlete anymore, but I want to still be fit. I always want to be fit. So I want to be fit enough to jump into an Olympic too. And I think if I can, like, if I could do Boulder Peak, I feel like I could jump into a half, but oh, easy. I mean, but now okay, now I'm getting big again. <laughs> yeah. But um, well, but yeah, my... jumping into some sprints, and but yep. I found ultra running this year, and being on the trails, and being in nature, and tuning out, <sighs> just kind of plugging into nature. That is totally my gig right now. That's what I'm feeling is calling me in. It's like my friend Kenny. He does all my video work. I mean, he's 31, did the whole Kona thing, and his fiance is a naturopathic doctor. So she would test all his levels and have him on a very strict like plan for Ironman. He's like, I did it. It was great, but it trashed my body. Mm. He's like, I'm healthier now just training half as much, e- eating the same way I did than I was then because she would test his hormone levels and adrenal fatigue and everything. Like, oh, everybody needs a natural. I always I say, BJ and I need a wife. Like, I really <laughs> wish we could just get a wife in to kind of, I mean, if she was a naturopathic doctor, that would be But amazing. it was fascinating. She's like, I thought I was healthier than ever. But sure yeah. enough, he's like, now I actually feel healthy. Yeah. Well, you carry, you definitely carry a level of stress in your body, just physical stress, but also like, I mean, you get into the thick of Ironman training. It's like you're eating, sleeping, working, and training, yeah. and that's it. I mean, it's kind of sad, but there's a reason it's the highest segment of divorce in oh, yeah. the U.S. population. Yeah. We were just and I tell that stat this. to yeah. people, and they're like, there's no way. Oh, totally. And I was like, all right, out of all our friends, divorced, divorced, <laughs> divorced. And sure enough, it's turned 40, did Iron Man, husband or wife, couldn't handle it anymore, left them. Yep. Yeah, we were, well, Racing the Peak Week reconnected with a lot of people we hadn't seen in a long time. And we were saying, like, wow, we're the only couple that's still out there on the course yeah. um, and out there on the course as a married couple. <laughs> it's a handful. It's kind of sad. I'm sure you saw so many old friends. Yeah. yeah. It was- and being a massage therapist here in Boulder for so many years and working with athletes, I saw divorces left oh, yeah. and right. Yeah, over the sport. But... Yeah, it's intense. So um, I don't think I'm gonna leave you. I'm just, I'm just gonna Leaving be more of a lifestyle a yeah. triathlete. <laughs> you can keep keep doing Ironman. So let's talk about the evolution of without limits. Like I don't even know. Let's even go be before that. Before that, like you're a New Englander, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Love it. Yeah. I mean, grew up in Connecticut, was a swimmer my whole life, youngest of four. Mm. And it was one of those, I grew up on a very good swim team. I mean, they churn out Olympic trial qualifiers in high school every four years, turned out uh, Olympians. And my parents always looked at me and said, you know what? You're not going to be six foot two. You're going to be a (laughs) decent swimmer. You're not going to go to the Olympics, but you love running. You love biking. Let's give triathlon a go. And there wasn't a lot of triathlons in the area at the time. How old are you at this point? I was 14 and just was looking for something different in the summertime. And my parents said, you know what? Let's go to Cape Cod. We love vacationing up there. Heard about these small sprint triathlons there. Let's just hop in. And I looked back in my first race, I looked at a picture, running shorts on, (laughs) extra large tank top. I was five foot one, 100 pounds, huge baggy tank top. I put my helmet on backwards. (laughs) Back then it was the wild west, as you guys know. I think I rode through transition. There was no mount dismount line (laughs) and had a blast. I mean, it was so much more about finishing and just the challenge of you don't know what to expect. I mean, you're in the ocean. Second race got stung by a jellyfish and 
crashed in the beach sand because it wasn't swept <laughs> on a corner. I mean, triathlon back then was very, very different as a sport than it is now. It's very, Yeah, it's, it was definitely more raw. And even going on Sunday to race your race, I was like, oh, man, I love this first-come, first-serve stuff. This is awesome. I don't have to look for my number. And yeah, I just loved, like, it was... It was coming down to like more of the basics. It's funny, people joke like this course marshal directed me in the wrong spot or this cop told me to go the wrong way on uh, on this course. And I'm like, be thankful you had a course marshal. Like back in 96, <laughs> we would have to drive the course a handful of times the day before, especially in New England, because those courses had 15, 20 turns. Yeah. yeah, on a sprint. And you were literally, there were no course marshals. You're lucky you had cops at the intersections and duct tape on the road, small little arrows that you were looking to be like, all right, I'm going the right way. So you did that series that you eventually eventually ended up running, and we'll we'll talk about that. And then did it just you just had a love for it from there? I fell in love with it. it. It became our family vacations, and so it really brought my whole family together. My older brother, who I started the company with, Tony was, Tony was yep. looking for a change of pace too. And I met your sister too one year. What's your sister's Candy. name? Candy. Yeah. They were all looking for just something different in their lives. We had been competitive swimmers. They were competitive divers and lacrosse players for so many years. We wanted something fun and outdoorsy. I mean, you can only stare at the black line in the pool for so long where it becomes monotonous. Right. And every race was different. That's what makes triathlon so unique. I mean, every venue, every course, even if you go back year after year, the weather's different. I mean, so many of those New England races, you'd wake up in the morning and go, all right, I wonder if there's gonna be three foot waves, five foot waves, <laughs> if we're gonna get downpoured on, and, yeah. or if, it's gonna be a fog storm up in Sunapee, New Hampshire, and you're gonna be able to see the course. <laughs> I mean, you just don't know. And, and that's what made me personally fall in love with the sport. And it was coming time to go to college, and Outside Magazine was the one subscription I got every year for Christmas. And sure enough, Boulder featured every single year, cover of the magazine, number one outdoor city, best place to live, fastest growing tech community, amazing college. And there was this one triathlon, Boulder Peak. And back then, there were three triathlons in all of Colorado. And there was an upstart half Ironman, Harvest Moon, mm -hmm. which yeah. we were able to take over. It just got started in 2000. There was a, another pool swim sprint, I think down in Pueblo. And there was Boulder Peak that started in 1992. So eventually applied to CU. University of Colorado. Had you been out here before? Came out on a trip to go to actually Vineman, which was a junior national team qualifier in 99. So my parents planned my college visits around my racing schedule. So on the That's way back, I was awesome. way back from Vineman, we stopped in Boulder and just instantly fell in love. Did the Boulder Peak that year. And I was telling Brian earlier, two days before the race, I'd never seen old stage. <laughs> I had my tri bike that had 1121, I think eight speed gearing at the time and ended up driving my bike into the garage. <laughs> there go the shifters, the bike was trashed, so I had to use my road bike for the race. And that was the first time I saw old stage because we were in such a scramble, and I remember climbing going, thank God. Like, this is literally the steepest hill I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was such a fun race because after the race, I mean, all the, these iconic figures that I'd grown up watching on TV and seeing in magazines, you never saw him at a race in New England. We just didn't have that kind of community other than Karen Smyers at the time. But I was at the finish line going, all right, there's Mark Allen and Mike Pig. And I mean, name a name. They were there because they had just raced, but they were hanging out. 
they were drinking beers with the age groupers. And the race director at the time, Paul Carlson, who founded the race, was running around like a, a cartoon character. And I said, you know what? That's not your typical race director. He's having more fun than the athletes are out here. And this is the one of the biggest races in the country. I mean, at that time, and that's only 17 years ago, you could name every Olympic distance race in the country on two hands. It was St. Anthony's, Chicago, Boulder Peak, Alcatraz, Memphis in May. I mean, those are your iconic races. There was no New York, Philly back then. So in terms of the community, Boulder had something special, and it still does today. And it, it started with that race in 92. So you came out here, you raced it on your visit, and then you were like, dude, I'm so here. Mm -hmm. Have you ever left? I left, but Boulder has, a, as you guys know, a very interesting way of sucking you back in. As we're on our second trip in the last like six months, we're here again. Went to college here, <laughs> didn't know what I wanted to do after college, was taking the very traditional, I'll just go to law school and business school. And it was actually my parents convinced me to... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Typical law school. <laughs> I, I don't know what like, I want to do with my life. I don't know what I want to yeah. do, so I'm just going to smoke a lot of pot. That was that was what I did. Apparently, you were thinking, well, that's the difference maybe between Connecticut. D definitely. <laughs> Very pretentious. Fairfield County, Connecticut. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Of yep. course. It's very typical to become a lawyer. But my parents said, you know what? You raced on the junior national team for a number of years. You took a little bit of a break from triathlon in college. Go back, give Racing Pro a, a go for just a year or so. See how it goes. And took a year off and actually met this kid named Cam Dye, who was a college swimmer. We moved in together. He wanted to start racing triathlon. I wanted to start racing and started doing a number of local races, traveling around the country together. We went to Nautica, which at the time was just the Malibu Triathlon, mm -hmm. and went to a number of races. He turned pro halfway through the summer because, as you know, his career has been phenomenal. I turned pro at the end of the summer and raced together for about two to three years. But at that point, I started going to races and looking around saying, all right, what's going into the production here? I'm learning so much about racing in Colombia, South America, or Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic, because I was racing ITU at the time, going, there's so much that we could bring back to Colorado in terms of a race that's missing right now. Mm -hmm. And it, I said, you know what? I can't keep racing pro forever. I think I was spending more money than I was actually making in, in prize money at the time. Cam was actually kind of in the same boat. He was perennially about ninth or 10th place just off the podium and just out of the money up until about 2009 when he broke out and won St. Anthony's and then the rest is history. Yeah, I, lo I love that. Just dispelling that glamour that living the life of a pro triathlete is just like, you get up, you train, like this is your job and you gotta like make money. You gotta perform and, and like there's pressure. Yeah. We always, uh, on long training rides, Cam and I would always joke, we're like, there's two types of up and coming pro triathletes <laughs> that you get the, I mean, you're out of college, you're 23, you have no money. You're either, I'm working four different jobs to make ends meet to get to the next race, or I, I get the parent fund, the trust fund to bank on. And, and we could put 50% of pro up and coming pro triathletes in one of those boats. <laughs> we were definitely the, we have four jobs. We were swim coaches, lifeguarding, 
babysitting, picking up random jobs on Craigslist, <laughs> which awesome. is tough. But it was fun looking back and saying that's where we came from because it gave us an appreciation for when, for him, for when he finally made it and started winning prize money. And for me, when the production company took off to say, all right, that that's how it all started. Like if, yeah, and it if was an worst adventure. Case, worst case scenario, I can babysit. Yep. Right? Like, <laughs> it makes you a survivor. You know, and we're we're at our friend Shelby's house right now, this amazing place in North Boulder, and we were talking. She's got a seven-year-old son, and we were talking about how like everyone, everybody wins now. And and I don't have children, but and I haven't been on the parenting scene, obviously. But I'm like, there's something really wrong about that, where everybody wins. You know, I mean, I grew up in a house where I'd be like, I want this, and my dad was always like, How does it feel to want? That was his answer for everything, followed up with, no one ever said it would be easy living in America, which I was like, that doesn't even make sense, you know, (laughs) like, who says that? But it gave me survival skills, you know, and even now, as we're still, like, living this kind of, like, risky life, I know that no matter what, up until now, like, I've been okay, and, you know, that I've got food in the fridge, and, and, like, you get these survival skills, and it also teaches you to... I think follow your passion. Like you wanted to race pro and there's a way, there's always a way to get it done. There's a choice. You have a choice, right? Do you really want to go after it? Do you need all this extra stuff or can you like, can you make do with one bike and Mm -hmm. race wheels and one trainer and you don't need all this extra stuff when it really comes down to what is important to you. And it was racing pro at that point. And then when it became time to, I want to start one race with my brother, it was, we had $600 to our name. I mean, that's not how a Lifetime or an ITU company starts <laughs> a, a, a race. I mean, we literally had to start taking entry fee money before we had permits in hand. And we joke about the early days now, the stories behind the scenes of if people only knew that, yeah, we were taking entry fee money for races that didn't have permits at the time because we had to float the deposits. <laughs> Because there was no money in the bank. There was no sponsorship. There was no investors in bankroll. And, and thank God we put on good races to start with and got permits for the later season events because it was sink or swim. So when did, so, so here's the transition. So when did Without Limits come about? Was it with that first race? It was 2008. Okay. And we were actually, it was a, it's a cool creation story. We were at Waterworld in October. Oh, yeah, Waterworld. And it was a rainy Wednesday, and that's the best time to go to a water park because there's no lines. It's all adults. Yep. (laughs) There was no one there, and we're riding the rides, and and we're just, it was me, my brother, and our sister Candy, and we were having a blast. And we were talking about, yeah, we should start a race, and Colorado at the time didn't have a lot of beginner-friendly events. I mean, it had the 5430 series, which was the Sprint, Boulder Peak, and the Long Course, that had amazing professional fields, but in in some ways it catered to that, I don't want to call it professional age grouper, but more competitive athlete. And it was when I started racing on the East Coast, the Cape Cod series, and it was set up events in North Carolina that I looked around and said, there's mountain bikes here. And there's pros over there, and they're all having the same experience. We don't truly have that in Colorado. So I said, let's start one race. And we just joked about it. And our sister, she's the girl next door school teacher, about as polite as can be, started yelling at us like, you always talk about it, just finally go do it. And you don't know where to start, but start asking around, ask questions, call up other race directors. 
and some were really receptive and others were very very protective of their niche and they want to monopolize it's like real estate they want to monopolize their venue like no 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 you can't go there can't put on a race there Mm. and paranoia exactly And, and if you really, like, if you want to be, if you are successful and you, and you want to continue to be successful, like, lending a generous hand to someone who's just starting is really the best thing that you can do. There's a lot of egos in, in the race directing world, as you can imagine. I mean, like any industry, but I found more in race directing than anywhere else. Mm. And we said, you know what, we're not going to go up against 5430, which pretty much dominated the Colorado scene at the time, because... We have $600 in a bank account and don't know how to put on a race. <laughs> but we're, we're going to cater to that beginner athlete, and we're going to put on a race in the beginning of the season and at the end of the season. We're going to kind of fill the gap in, in the calendar because there were really only, even at that time in 2008, five to seven triathlons in Colorado. Whereas in New England at the time, you could, on any given weekend, do a race from May through September. Yeah, so that's right. what we were trying to bring out here. We were living and racing here at the time, and I remember be, like there wasn't a lot was, of races. Yeah. We would do the f- series, the fifty-four thirty series. But you're so right. Like that was that was an intimidating group. Even the sprint is like an intimidating group to step into. Even even as people who had been doing triathlons, um, it was such a different. It was such a different caliber of athletes. Um, and then we would do like the rattlesnake. Was that you guys? That, that wasn't, wasn't us, you guys. No. no. But that was a little bit more beginner friendly. Yes, that was. it was Loveland. smaller. Loveland, yep. Lake to Lake. Loveland, Lake to Lake. And then, of course, when you started the Open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Summer Open at, was at that, that Union, right? At Union yeah. Rest. Yeah, so that's the first one. Was that the first one you that did? That was it. And the first race had 180 people. And we look back and we look at the t-shirts now and we look at pictures of what the transition and the finish line looked like. And at the time you think it's the best race ever. (laughs) It's like the world championships. And now we look at pictures and I just cringe and go, ooh, there was no fencing. We we put cones around the transition area. (laughs) And our signs around course was literally just poster board with Sharpies and... That's awesome. But you have to start somewhere. You do. It has to start somewhere. We say it's like putting out windows. I mean, Windows 1 in 96 was garbage, but you got to get something on the market and you just make it better from there. And that's the mindset we took. We said every single year, just got to get a little bit better. And And you got to be receptive to feedback mm -hmm. because people are going to give you, especially when they come up to you with their garments and, you know. The swim (laughs) course was was (laughs) 0.01 short. This was a great story. It was actually a race (laughs) last year. And this guy does a lot of our races, super nice triathlete. And he's more definitely elite amateur status. He came up and he's like, Lance, he's a swimmer. It's like sprint triathlon. It's like your course was 725 meters out of the 750. I'm like, Conrad, that's actually really good. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you, you have to understand there's no swim course in the world. Yeah. I don't care what race it is. Absolutely. That is 100% accurate because you're putting slack in the buoy line so they can float with the waves or the current. And depending on where you start and you exit the water, there's a little bit of running there. Right. Everybody's swimming a different distance. It's like the fact that we got within 25 meters, I was stoked. <laughs> like, that was awesome. And he, and he was upset. He's like, it was short. Like, <laughs> You're like, thanks for the great feedback. Yeah. Yes, we're doing something right. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah. So, how did that first? How did the first race go? I mean, you look back now and you're like, oh my god, post the board and everything. But what I love about it is that you just kind of you showed up. You're like, we're gonna do this, and that there, that requires a degree of vulnerability. 
right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, in any time you're vulnerable, you have to be, you're putting yourself open to suck. Like, you might just, this whole thing might just suck. Like, you have no idea. I, you, I still remember when the first sign-up came in. I mean, we opened up registration in December that first year. I think it took a month for one sign-up to come in, and, and we were using Active at the time, and they send you an email, and someone signed up for your race. And we were so stoked, like, someone actually signed up, call their parents up, like, we got one registration. <laughs> and then the next week, it was like, two and three came in, called up our parents, like, we got three registrations. And finally, my mom's like, we love you, but are you gonna call us every time someone registers? <laughs> like, I hope people register, you're gonna lose a lot of money. I know, especially. But we're like, this could actually work. And that first race, I remember we made $50 and we went out, we got lunch, spent the $50. Well, that was a lot of work for 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but then we kept adding races from there and every race filled a void in the community. And I mean, we looked at ourselves as opportunists at the time. It wasn't, we're gonna copy what someone else is doing. It's we're gonna look where there's a void and grow from there. I was coaching at the time and there was a big all women's triathlon in Colorado, the Danskin. Mm-hmm. And it was oh, about yeah. two to 3,000 women. It's huge, yes. Yeah. And, and I can rip on that race a little bit since they're not in existence anymore because my athlete called me up after the race. It was her first triathlon in tears. It's like it was such a cluster, so disorganized that she was literally still getting her car parked because there was such a backup when her swimway was taking off. Didn't know what to do at that point. Didn't know, do I even show up to race still? Are they going to let me in transition? I mean, didn't know anything. And I said, triathlon that was your first experience shouldn't be like that so we started an all-women's race and that became the outdoor divas triathlon and the whole goal was we're going to cap it at 500 women and then 600 so it's a beginner friendly feel because all these women every year 50 percent of them are doing their first ever race and it should never feel that they show up and don't know what's going on yeah. They're going to show up and they're going to be nervous and that's normal. Already, But yeah. with 500 people, you know where to get the answers. You can see a staff member or a volunteer and go up and you don't feel bad asking a question. At a race with two to 3,000 people, you're just so overwhelmed, your brain shuts down. Mm. So you paved the way for another entryway, an easy entryway for people to get into the sport. And what's been really fun over the last 10 years is seeing those women who started in an all-women's event, then graduate to a co-ed sprint and then do our Steamboat Olympic distance or the Olympic at the Colorado Tri. And then two to three years down the road, do Harvest Moon. I mean, we have seen this pod of women progress all the way through the sport. And now it's a lifestyle for them where before it's, they were just off the couch and never had done anything like this before. That's so amazing. And I know at the Danskin they had like swim angels where you could, like if I wanted to go in and help somebody swim or something like that. Did you have that at the Outdoor Divas? We didn't just because we said there's a certain threshold where you need to be able to swim on your own. We're not going to, we've never taken the mindset of everyone's a winner. Right. So, <laughs> I think that's good. I, I, we, we don't want survival skills. We don't want you to be carted around the course because they didn't even feel like you were swimming at that point. There's right. someone pulling you as you leaned on a noodle. Right. Yeah, exactly. And with a smaller race, it's it's definitely more, there's more of a space there for people to kind of make their way through. If you're talking about uh, a w- beginner women's race of two, 3,000 people, that's really intimidating. Right, so. And one cool stat that we were shocked, but it has held true every single year, we pull out less women at the all women's races than we do at our co-ed races. Mm. And our sister always told us, because she works for us, she's like, well, women aren't going to do anything they're not prepared for. If they're signing up for something, they're doing it. Yeah, and they're training. True. Yeah, they are. Especially yeah. if they've had a baby. 
Like those yeah. women, you, they're not getting pulled out of. This Usually, way. it's the guy that <laughs> signed up for the race on a bet over a few beers yeah. that just realized a hundred meters in, I can't swim, <laughs> and, and we're pulling out of the water. <laughs> All right, so we got the the first. Um, what year was that for the first? That was two thousand eight. Okay, two thousand eight. For the first triathlon. Mm-hmm. And then did you, you just did one that year. No, we did three that year. You did three that one year. One was an all-women's and then... Oh, so you did the Outdoor Divas we, that year. We did. We, nice. we came out late after our athlete did dance skin and got the feedback that we said, let's do this. That's awesome. Yep. And you just went right to it. And then what was the third one? The Oktoberfest. Yeah. October, oh, yeah. Okay. And the whole goal was people who did the summer open at the beginning of the year, we, they could track and see how much better they got throughout the summer by doing the same exact race on the same course at the end of the summer. And that was actually modeled, most people don't realize this, we modeled everything we did in Colorado after timeout productions, after the Cape Cod series, because you had Hyannis 1 in June and Hyannis 2 in September. Mm-hmm. And it was the same mindset. You could track to see how mm-hmm. much better you got. And in those races, it was the same thing. What we loved was how beginner friendly it was, but also how it catered to the elites in the Boston area. And they were all racing the same experience. And that's what I think a lot of people miss. It's you can have a beginner friendly race that also caters to the veteran age group or going for a PR. Totally. I mean, we all, we call mm-hmm. it professional laid back. There's races that are very, very laid back to the point where they're disorganized. And there's races that are so, so organized to the point where it feels like you're being put in a box. Mm. And we try to blend the two. And that was basically our mission statement of very, very laid back and friendly rack your bike where you want to rack it just get there early but still organized to the point where you know the race is going to start on time you know awards is going to start on time you know you're going to be safe out on course yeah you know triathlon i i find like races really i've had we've had some running races that are just like they just don't start on time i've had a lot of that mm. but triathlons yeah like they start, they start on, time. on time yeah for sure I'm all right that so newport was one of them yeah after that first year, did you guys like come together and you were like, okay, what's the plan for next year? What did we, were you getting feedback from your athletes? A lot of great feedback. And they kept saying, hey, add this, change this. You guys should do an off-road triathlon. And then sure enough, that was where Xterra Lori came from because Colorado didn't have a lot of Xterras at the time. And that was a very beginner friendly course. So crazy that we didn't have this stuff here and it's not that long ago. No, and I'd say from 2009 year two, so really even this last year, it's like as a company, we just stepped on the gas pedal and, and didn't look back. Nice. Everything just, doors started to open where we weren't even knocking on them, like New England and other opportunities, because it was fun and we were just going with it. It was very much like a tech company being in startup mode. You're learning what you don't know, you're realizing more of what you don't know and you're just figuring it out. Yeah. And it's a little bit of chaos every year but it's organized chaos yeah so what did you do the second year did you add any races the second year added the xterra and let's see actually bought harvest moon nice yep that's right you guys took that over that's a half that was a half Half, yeah Yeah, that was the half that we always talked about we're we're gonna do it we're gonna do it it. and then we got to the end of the season and we're like well maybe not I would always do like my i always had all these rules back then like i would do an early season iron man so then i wouldn't have to really pay attention to much afterwards but i'm like oh, i'll just carry my fitness to september but never made it to Har- harvest moon all right so now we're in 2010 mm-hmm. um pretty much status quo in 2010 and then 2011 is when you pick explosion. up explosion yes 
So what happens in, what happens there? We send a thank you letter to Rich Havens, <laughs> the Time Out Productions. And, and that's really what happened. We said, thank you. With You don't even realize it, but we modeled everything we did in Colorado for the last three years after what we grew up doing and watching you from back in the 90s. And we said, thank you so much for being our mentor without realizing you were our mentor. In 10 years from now, if you're ever looking to retire, we would love to be at the table thinking, in 10 years, we'd be ready to take over his events. <laughs> and he writes back, said, 10 years is actually right now. I'm starting to talk to different companies. I remember you guys, you would volunteer. It's like, fly out, sit down, see if you're the right fit. And he was talking to a number of different race directors in the area that he just had bad gut feelings about, that they were just all about the money, that they were gonna kinda burn and pillage his races and get rid of his staff, which for him was family. And we said, no, we wanna basically step in and continue on your legacy and what you did with your staff. Because you need a pit crew there. Exactly. Like you guys are in Colorado, this is Cape Cod. And it, it all worked out and we kept his staff on board and they were all seasoned veterans that really embraced the two brothers from Colorado because we had our roots still back there. And that's re that is really important to New England. But they showed us the ropes and yeah. We did end up selling those events this last summer yeah, to I saw that focus notice. on Colorado. Yeah. Okay. But for those five years that we were out there, it was a blast because we could fly out the week before and meet that pit crew, and they were just gearing up and ready to go. They had put on these races for 20 years. I mean, these people were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, still slinging fans, putting up bike racks. And George Bent was in here. Oh my gosh, oh, yeah. George <laughs> Bent, always on the front page oh. of the Cape Cod Times. I wish he raced nationally. He's someone that probably could have went to sprint nationals, easily won his age group, but probably would have given the younger guys a run for their money yeah. too. Yeah, totally. I know, he's hardcore. Well, people in New England are pretty hardcore. Yep. But when we, like we had just moved back at the end of 2010, and we were in a little bit of like post Boulder depression. depression you for know, sure. so good to be back in New England, so good to be near the ocean and family and reconnecting with friends because we literally just moved back to the town that we had lived in before we moved to Boulder. And then whenever we saw that you guys were running those races in the summer, we're like, that's it, we are there. I'm like, if I'm not racing, I'm gonna volunteer. Just to like, you guys gave us like, piece of boulder back you have no idea how good it was to see you guys at that race but yeah it was super fun and uh, it wasn't just you guys there was actually a handful of people we met that moved back from colorado to somewhere in new england like wait are you guys the same without oh, so limits because awesome. you know us personally in boulder but there were a lot of people who only knew the company name yeah mm. and sure enough so we're cool. like i remember you and i remember that name and yeah those are great races so who um who's running them now summer so it's a husband and wife team and they were basically president and vice president of the cape cod triathlon club kathleen walker and andy sheridan and they started putting on races about three years ago just as a hobby i mean they had their main business and they fell in love with race directing so for the last couple of years they kept volunteering more and more to learn from us and then started shadowing us and we said you could be a good fit like you're what we were eight years ago and that's the type of personality we want to carry on the new england tri-tour who's yeah. had literally three owners in 30 years and it's such it's so it's so steep like it's it could run i mean not that it could run itself but i mean 
it's the architecture is there. I mean, the history of those races is fascinating. I mean, people in San Diego want to say they started the sport, which they did in 78, 79. But Dave McGilvery started those races in Cape Cod in 81 and oh 83. God, I didn't know that. I mean, they go back to the very beginnings. There was actually an Ironman. It wasn't an Ironman branded event, but it was that. the Cape Cod Endurance Challenge that went from Hyannis up to Provincetown for the bike. And then eventually in the New England towns, population grew, the race had to go away. But that at the time, I think was the third iron distance race in the world. Oh my God, that's so cool. All right, so um, so now it's, so you're back in New England, 2011, you're running these races. What's happening here in Colorado? Are you adding more races and? Colorado was going through a big change. Uh, Barry, the founder of 5430 Sports at, at the time, he had run those races for five years. He sold to Ironman. The sport was still growing, so Ironman was running the series. And it's funny, the sport in terms of athletes and participants, it's not this upward trend like everyone thinks. It's gone through a lot of cycles. Triathlon exploded in the 80s. I mean, you had the Coors Light series, the Bud Light series, ton of professional races. And then in the early 90s, triathlon kind of died and went through this huge depression. And then got in the Olympics in 96. It was in the Olympics in 2000, but as soon as they announced it getting in in the Olympics in 96, the sport started to trend up again. And then plateaued a little bit, but then from 2002 to about 2014, that's when the sport exploded. And you couldn't add races quickly enough. Mm -hmm. So we were adding a lot of races in Colorado at the time. Steamboat, Steamboat Lake Sprint, mm -hmm. Tribella, our competitors, and friends like Racing Underground were adding a lot of new events, Evergreen Try, Desert's Edge. So there was a big explosion of events to coincide with the explosion of participants. So we were just going a mile a minute. I mean, from May through December, every single weekend we were putting on one or two events. Oh my wow. God. And the Stroke and Stride too, would you yep. guys? The Swim Run Series yeah. at Boulder Res on Thursday nights, we took over in 2013. Okay. So. At the peak, which was 2015, we had 65 events. Holy crap! And what was your staff like at that at that time? Is it just you, Tony? Still, just Tony and I. Okay. It was very similar to what it is now. I mean, I did buy out my brother this past year, but it's a lot of contracted workers. And how we've come upon our staff is those are fun stories because each person has been very unique. They started out volunteering. Some of them lost their job or they were just looking for extra income. I mean, soccer moms or school teachers that have summers off. And they said, you know what? The event industry is really exciting. It's a lot of hard work, but in a lot of ways, it's kind of an adrenaline rush. And, and they love that. They love the stress of waking up at two in the morning, working their ass off till a race started at seven or eight. And then before they knew it, they we're cleaning up at one and they just go, what just happened? Yeah. I mean, a sprint triathlon production, it's a lot of moving pieces coming together at once and you blink and it's over. Yeah. I actually think a sprint triathlon is a harder race to produce than an Olympic or a half. And, and then- Because there's I, no breathing space no. in between what's happening. An Ironman distance event's a whole different animal. I mean, hats off to those guys. I could never do what they do. Our company could never put on a full distance race. But a, a sprint is, it's like Tetris in terms of the timing of everything and, the, par and the parts come together. Yeah. It's fun. It's, yeah. a, it's a dynamic challenge that our staff loves. Why do you say that you can never do a, f a full? 
what is it that you see? There's probably three different things going on. Oh, one is the brand. Uh, I mean, love them or hate them. They've created such a strong cult following with that logo and with the Jurodicona. And the logo tattooed on people's bodies. I- exactly. It's that. insane. It's crazy. I-, I mean, you've seen Challenge try to go up against them. Yeah. I-, I mean, you've seen... Rev 3. I mean, Rev 3, and they've had a number of their own issues, but that allure of Kona and that brand behind it is so, so strong that you would never pull the numbers. And the startup cost there, I I just, I don't even have the funds. Yeah. I mean, the amount of, and I've gotten to know a lot of the Boulder Ironman staff, people like Dave Christian and Tim Brocious, and watching them the week of an event, the amount of materials they move. I mean, if you just sat back and watched that, you'd have a whole new appreciation for what goes into those events. I can't even imagine, because we just show up, rack the bikes, and, and do the race, but I do appreciate that, like, I don't ever have to think about anything, because I know that it's gonna be there. And it's probably one of the reasons why I've stuck with Ironman, the brand, because smaller, full distance, you know, 140, uh, 140.6 mile races don't get the participation, like you were saying, and it's like, well, can I trust the aid stations? Yep. Can I can I trust the timing? Can I trust? It's an know? unknown. Whereas Iron Man is this really. And you known. have so much invested in your own training, yeah, and in your entry fee that you don't want to have those questions right. come up on race day. You want to know the when you show up to an aid station, there's going to be flat coke, there's going to be cliff gels, there's going to be whatever you need, chicken broth, whatever Ice, it is, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember being in the Iron Man warehouse and seeing a five pallets of chicken broth and going the heck is that for and they said the amount of chicken broth that they go through at an Ironman run course aid stations is mind-blowing I said never would even thought of that been in the sport for 20 plus years put on over 100 races there's just things I wouldn't even think of and when you think about the sometimes there's thousands of volunteers now it's managing thousands of volunteers. So yeah, that's really... Um... It was actually one of our staff members, Jen Sabo. She was... Boulder in Colorado is a very fun community, even in terms of the event industry, because we all work for each other in a lot of ways. My new roommate, Jen, was actually the Boulder Ironman volunteer director. And so I get to watch her for weeks on end, stress out and put together her spreadsheets. And she'd be like, it's 2,000 volunteers. We have more volunteers than we have racers. It's like, good luck. You're gonna do great out there, but good luck. Like, that's a lot of people to manage. That is a lot of people to manage, yeah. I don't even, I don't think that I would want to walk into that if that's, I was a race director. That's why I challenge Rev3, and, and I think HITS is the other one, HITS Triathlon. They're just, they're just that secondary level right now. And I think, yeah, Challenge did, didn't they move in? to the US and now it feels like I don't, I can't find any races really around here. From what I know about them, everything is licensed. So you don't have that consistency of every race is the same versus if you're putting it on. I mean, when you guys were in Cape Cod, you could show up to the Falmouth Triathlon and know it's gonna be a very similar type of production that if you went to the Summer Open in Colorado was gonna be. Mm -hmm. For them, I don't think they still have that brand consistency. Roth, which is their baby, has added this world amazing because that's their team. They're putting that race on. And I've always said, when hits came out, their motto and tagline was, a distance for everyone. And I've always said, a distance for everyone is a distance for no one. And it's going to flop before they even started putting it on because there's something very special about everyone showing up to a race and it just being a sprint and everyone's having the same experience. 
So when you're hanging out after the race in the venue, like at Boulder Peak, there was an Olympic distance race. That was it. Everyone's talking about the same experience they had out there. They're all waiting for one award ceremony versus if you have four races going on at the same time, like people thought was the next trend in the sport, these festival type atmospheres, it loses that connection with, oh, what award ceremony is going on? Oh, that's the sprint award ceremony. Then an hour later is the Olympic. It just disconnects the Mm -hmm. entire feel and energy of the venue. And it's going to disconnect the spectators from the athletes in that, well, are they on the last, are they going to the finish? Are they, do I clap? Are they on their first loop? Like, and I find that even with, you know, multiple loop courses, but I can't even imagine if you have multiple loop courses and four different races going on at the same time, um, that there's a huge space for disconnect there. And that's the last thing you want in a triathlon. You want to have a tight community and strong connection. And there's this mindset that I hate and it's still present and I hope it's going away that the longer distance race means you're more of a real triathlete. Oh, you did the Olympic? That's more of a real race than the sprint. No, I or, oh, that. you're yeah. you're the full athlete. You're a real triathlete. You only do halves. You're not a triathlete. I'm sorry. Some of the hardest races I've ever done were sprint distance. And, I mean, you're still out there racing for an hour or an hour and a half. So, you almost invalidate the shorter distance when you have four different distances going on. You have to look at the sport and say, you're all triathletes. There's something hard and unique about every single distance. I mean, when I raced pro, people would always talk about, oh, you do draft legal, there's no biking, you're just sitting in a group. And you look at ITU racing now, and it's come a long way. It's some of the hardest and most dynamic bike courses in bike racing out there. I mean, I'll admit, there were some races where, yeah, flat course, I mean, you're just sitting in, getting towed around, and then I was watching people run away from me. I wasn't a runner, but then there were some races that were multi-loop, hilly courses that my heart rate was pegged harder than it would be in any non-drafting race you could imagine. So it's very easy to be a backseat driver and say, oh, longer distance race, you're a real athlete. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, it's such bullshit. And I hear we hear it all the time. Well, I'm just doing a sprint. Well, I did a, um, you know, and it's like the voice starts to get more quiet and they kind of cut. And I'm like, stand up for yourself, man. Like a sprint's no joke. That's so hard. I mean, how many times I've been doing a sprint and being like, I so wish I was running a marathon right now. At least (laughs) I could slow the freak down, you know? But yeah, why do we minimize? Why, why, why do you think that is? Why, why has that happened? I, I think it's a little bit of the egocentric attitude of triathletes of, well, longer is better. More training is better. And I think we're starting to realize now and that you can't go hard every day. That yeah, you make your hard days hard, your easy days easier. But yeah, more isn't better. More yardage in the pool doesn't make you a better swimmer. I can look at some of the best Olympic swimmers in the world. They're not doing 10,000 yards a day like some triathletes are doing. It's more focus on technique, speed, mixing it up. It's the same, same premise that we had um, with our discussion with Neil Henderson um, mm-hmm. last summer. He, he was adamant about the heart because Flora Duffy had just come off the Olympics, right? ITU. Or ITU. He was just like, people just are not getting it. Like, you, you have to go hard obviously but you have to go as hard as you're going hard you have to dial it back on those easy days and make sure you're going easy. neil was my coach the last year oh, okay. i raced pro and he's been cameron's coach for a number of years as oh, yeah. well but our swim coach and actually cameron's swim coach in high school grant hollicky always preached that it's about technique in the water 
it's about speed in the water. And I mean, I could argue he's one of the best swimmers, the best non-drafting swimmer in the sport right now. Cameron? Yep. Yeah. Max workout, three to 5,000 yards is what he did in high school. And he became a division one swimmer. Versus team I grew up on, we were pounding seven to 10,000 <laughs> yards every single day. And it didn't make me any better. Just made me more tired. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're, yeah, it's in going longer doesn't mean, yeah, it means you're more tired. It means, it doesn't mean that you're a better triathlete. And it, it certainly for many people doesn't mean you're a better person. So I think that's mindset in our sport is shifting, which is nice to see. Yeah. Because five years ago, it was very prevalent of more is better, or the longer distance race means you're more of a real athlete. And it's nice to see that changing. Yeah, that's such crap. And and we're definitely like at Yogi Triathlete, we're just all about being inclusive, inclusive. Like this is for everyone. And if we're sitting across from, you know, a gold medalist from the Rio Olympics, or we're sitting across from someone who just did their first 5K, like the similarities between those two people, like we are more similar than we are different, yet we want to separate ourselves and say, well, I just did this one sprint, so I'm not really a triathlete. And, you know, it's like, stop minimizing it. Like, you're getting out there. You're doing something amazing. You have a di- you've trained, you've, di- you've practiced discipline, and now you're going to use that, that fitness and your will to get to that finish line. It's funny. I think running at the elite level has never had that mindset. I mean, a lot of my friends that are professional runners, they always say, well, I'm going long now because I can't run that fast anymore. I, I don't have the 4.30, 5K speed. So I'm going to go to do marathon because I can hold five-minute miles. for. So they never had the mindset of, well, the marathon is more of a real running race than the 5K. It's when I'm younger, I get the speed, and, and that's where I need to focus. And then as I age, it'll be a gradual transition to the marathon distance. But it was never one is better than the other. They're just different. Mm. And I think the, the, the more focused training versus the volume also leads to that balance in life and the lifestyle of triathlon. So now you're not out there logging the hours, you're, you're doing some very specific quality work, but you're able to spend time with the family, you're able to get your job done, your stress level is probably less, you're getting sleep, you're, you're focusing on your nutrition. Like it's a well, well-balanced experience versus like you have to like put all this miles in and be tired. And I think that shift is what we're seeing is what we promote with our athletes too. We want that we want that triathlon life, like the whole thing. And in order to do that, you need to have everything balanced. You can't be overloaded in one area. And, and that's why as a company too, we've stayed in triathlon. That's our focus. We do cycle cross races and road cycling, but triathlon is what we love because it's a lifestyle sport. We never wanted to dabble in, I call it the parade events, where you're getting color thrown on you or bubbles thrown at you or whatever it is, you're <laughs> running through foam and they're cool and they're fun. And there's such an explosion of those type what of are, events. What is that event? I've never even yeah. heard of that. <laughs> but at the same time, you do it, you get the picture, and then you're done. Mm-hmm. It's not a lifestyle sport. And we said, you know what? Triathlon might not be growing as quickly as it used to, but it's still a healthy lifestyle sport that's going to be here in 10 years. Yeah, like without limits is standing the test of time. Yep. Because uh, you guys are like sticking to what you know and what you love and what you're good at and you're not trying to branch off like and then that's kind of like an ADD thing like you're just oh we got to do that now we got to do that now and that's where I think things fall apart. Like, I mean are you going to be focused. running through foam and fire 10 years from now? Right. Probably not. Those companies <laughs> are going to try to have to find the next hot new thing and if they can find the next hot new thing great more power to them but I guarantee triathlon is still going to be here in 10 years. Yep just swim bike run. 
which as all three of us know is way more than swim bike run <laughs> it is it's a lifestyle and it's a lifestyle that you know you can stay really fit and healthy and you know you can go to the extreme with it as well but um but yeah it'll be there at the end of the day through your injuries and all of that anytime i've been kind of off the clock with injuries i always think well the triathlon community is not shutting down because i've got this thing going on in my calf you know like i'll heal it up and when i go back it'll be waiting there for me so let's shift to the Boulder Peak that happened two days ago. Yeah. So when did you Which brought we, us back? And Barry probably knew at this point, but yeah. we were at Barry Siff's house in October and we were talking about the Boulder Peak. And so we talk about it actually on the podcast and he was just kind of saying how bummed he, he was just bummed about how he saw it falling away and everything. And obviously it's his baby and he's, you know, attached to it and all that. But when did it happen where what was the transition where you guys took it over and then what was the involvement of Barry and Jody? At, at that point, when you saw Barry and Jody in October, they knew nothing. Oh, they, they did know nothing. They, they, I mean, they knew of Without Limits because we started when he was phasing out and, yeah. and they saw we a company grow over the years and then they moved to Arizona. So they lost a little bit of a connection with the Boulder community but kept tabs on it. So they saw what was happening. They were. I still... think they always will keep tabs on. <laughs> oh, they will. I he mean... was like the mayor the other day in transition. Like I so saw, I'm like, look at him. He's like going around yelling. They at love Boulder, and they still have so many <laughs> good friends here. Yeah. But it, it was really Ironman sold it to Lifetime because they were focusing more on the 70.3 and the full distance, as they should, which made sense. Yeah. That's totally. their bread and butter. I mean, that's what they're really good at. Those yeah. big scale productions. And then Lifetime was going through some changes, as a company as well, where they wanted to focus on the big 2000 person events. I mean, as a company, when you have that many employees and staff, it's hard to justify and make money on a 500 or a thousand person race. They have to jack up the entry fee. They got to bring in a lot of sponsorship where call our team more like special forces. We're very small, we're very mobile and, and we're extremely cost effective because I'm working out of my bedroom. I don't have to pay corporate rent in an office park like those companies do. So they said, you know what? It's time to find a local owner. That's what works in Colorado. I think Colorado, more than any other place I've ever lived in in the country, even East Coast, West Coast, it's very locals first. And you see that here with sandal companies, restaurants, I mean, you name it. And Boulder specifically is even more of a locals first community. And you don't see a lot of branded huge fast food chain type companies succeed here. Yeah, and there was a Dunkin' Donuts when we moved here, when we first moved in. <laughs> but <laughs> but even now it's just not there anymore. Right, driving down the road the other day, I was saying to BJ, I'm like, it's so nice to see the places that have stood the test of time. You know, like Shea Twee is still mm -hmm. there, you know, like housing helpers. And those places have been here forever. I mean, Cam Dye grew up in Boulder. I mean, out of all the Boulder pros, he is a true born and bred. <laughs> and he always jokes, he's like, Boulder's the only place I've ever seen two McDonald's go out of business and a Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> go out of business, too. <laughs> That's awesome. So, I mean, just talking a Lifetime, they were focusing a lot on their bigger events, on the technology side of their company, which is Chrono Track, which was becoming pretty successful. So it was just great timing. And when it all came together, I said, there's two calls I need to make. One was to Cam, because the first thing we need to do is bring back the pro race. I've never been a believer, and I'll argue with any race director in the country, 
having a pro race does not attract age groupers. There's this mindset of, if you have a big pro race, it's gonna be high profile. All these age groupers are gonna sign up. Age groupers don't give a shit if XYZ Pro is on the start line. They're worried about their own race. They're worried about getting the start line themselves. So they're never gonna see whoever is being touted as they're showing up to race. So I said, it's not about that. Boulder Peak though, is the one exception to that rule because I've watched that race for a number of years, having the pros there and having them, like when I came out here as a kid to race, interact with the age groupers and hang around and drink beer and share in the award ceremony together is what made that race special. I mean, being able to finish your race and boom, I'm hanging out, sitting on a lawn next to Cam Dye and Paula Finley and all these amazing personalities and just being able to approach them and talk to them, you don't get that at other races. And I think people, I mean, I know we were so sad and we weren't even living here to see all that go away. And I think that locals living here um, were just so fired up to have it come back. Like when it came back in its full expression was like, if you came back and you didn't have the pro race, would have been like, oh, I'm psyched the peaks, but I'm psyched Lance was running it because I know it's gonna be great. But it'd be so cool if the pros were there, you mm -hmm. know, because it's just steeped in that history. And so to bring it back in its full expression, I think, was one of the smartest things you did. So that was the first call. And Cam you was like, like, all right, what do I need to do? You're racing on July 9th. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was someone who got me in touch with other pros that I didn't know because I had been out of that community for so many years. And he was a, an amazing resource. And... Ironically, this was the first time in his pro career that his entire family and his kids got to see him race. Oh, that's awesome. And, and obviously he won. But my second call was to Barry. And we all know and love Barry. Like you said, he's the mayor. <laughs> totally. He, he loves to shake, hold pictures with babies and, and high five everyone that's and awesome. be on the mic. And I said, Barry, you want to be involved again? Because in a lot of ways, you were the personality that elevated the peak to a whole different level after you took over from Paul. Paul was that character in a very different way, the founder of the race. He was more about drinking a beer, sitting in a lawn chair, wearing a Hawaiian shirt, and bonding with the age group athlete. He was that personality, larger than life. Barry was a larger than life personality that was more about the pros and interacting with them. I mean, you saw him after the race, interviewing them the second they crossed the line, right there on the microphone for everyone to hear. And that's what I knew I needed to bring on board because I couldn't do it all myself. There's like a level of humility that you have where I, I think it allows you to be so successful. You mean you could have approached it like, I gotta take over the peak and oh God, I gotta do it better than Barry did it. And instead what you did was you opened up the door and said, even though I've been doing this for this many years, I, I would like you to be part of it because that's what's gonna be the best thing for the race. Not the best thing for your ego, Lance, Like, but the best thing for the race and the community and the pros and the age groupers and everybody and the volunteers to, to bring it back in its essence as best we can with a new flavor to it. To have that level of humility, I think is, is everything to say about the success that you've had. Like you've been vulnerable and, you, and you've been humble to ask for help when you need it and bring in those influences for the betterment of not only the race, but the sport. And I knew there'd be a lot of eyes on our team that weekend. And I knew that because I just brought out my business partner. I mean, 
my brother Tony, we put on races for nine years and then life took him in a different direction, getting married, having kids. He was looking to get his weekends back. So this was not only the first year I was running races by myself without my brother, but compounding that with taking over the biggest race in Colorado and the first ever professional race that we had ever put on. I knew there were a lot of people looking at our company saying, what's gonna happen? And not waiting for us to fail, maybe our competitors, but just saying, can they pull it off? Can they do it? And that was a different level of pressure that for me personally, I've never had in my life and our team had never had because we had a lot of new members of the team as well and they didn't know the history behind the race or they didn't know about that pressure for them. It was, we're putting on a big event. But looking around and seeing who was there, whether it was the USAT officials or Barry or previous race directors, I knew there were a lot of people saying, all right, let's see how this goes. Let's see how they do. And I like that pressure, but it's still a level of stress that I knew I need more help. Yeah. So how did it go on Sunday? I, I mean, was, we experienced it, but I want to hear. It was hot. <laughs> it was hot, dude. Ten, 10 days out, you look at the forecast and you say, 94? That gonna be hot. N- not only is this the first time we've put on the peak <laughs> in a professional race, it's also gonna be the hottest day we've ever had for an event. Oh my God, really? Mm-hmm. It was hot. No, nope, not a single cloud in the sky either. Mm-mm. But overall, I mean, it was a very fast paced morning from two in the morning till we closed the doors at 5 p.m. It it felt like it was 100 miles an hour and our team embraced that and they crushed it. And they were worked over beyond belief, couldn't walk on Monday. But there were a lot of smiling faces out there and there were smiling faces, not just from the pros, but from the first timers too. And I always say, if I can please those two ends of the spectrum, I guarantee everyone in the middle had a good time. I uh, was walking through transition at one point in the morning and I heard this guy um, and he said, uh, oh yeah, you know, I used to do this race back when it was, you know, in it's with the pros were here and everything. And he, and he said, but dude, this is your first triathlon ever. This is going to be amazing. I'm so psyched for you. And so this is seasoned veteran talking to this, you know, newbie who's like, I don't even know what to do. He's like, don't even worry about it, man. You're ready. Like, just stay in the moment and have fun. It's going to be one of the best days of your life. And, and that to me is like, I love that about triathlon that you've got this guy who's you know, been racing Boulder Peak for so many years and now he's back and he's fired up to be there like we were, like just fired up to be there, to be back, but then realizing that this is a first time experience for so many people, you know, and that we get to say, oh my God, like you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. This is amazing. And I just, I love that. And what makes that race, I mean, you guys know it's old stage. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a first timer to climb that hill, I mean, from the professionals to the first timers, everyone talks after the race about one two mile long section called Old Stage. I mean, for this race, it it truly is what the beast is for St. Croix, what the sand ladder is for Alcatraz. I mean, we look at the giants of this sport. I mean, the lava fields in, in Kona, that's what defined this race and made it what it is and put it on the map. I mean, you could go over to Europe and a seasoned veteran triathlete would know like, oh, Boulder Peak, Boulder, the Mecca, old stage. I mean, it truly is that special of a climb. It's the best. It's the best. And the thing is, yeah, okay, so it's, 
a two mile climb, but like you're climbing as soon as you come out of that rest. Like you, it's not like you're, and then you get to the top. And you're not even done yet. Like, no, yeah, yeah, the real top. The then real you have top. to get to the real it's top. It's where we put the aid station is the first <laughs> yeah. top. Yes. And there's people lining the road and it's a big party up there. Yep. But then it flattens out and it kicks again. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then you get and then there's another crowd out at the real top and they're like, This is the real top. And then what you get on the other side is super just awesome. fun. It is just especially amazing. with Nelson being paved mm-hmm. was amazing. And then sixty third is I can't tell you how many times I've ridden 63rd, and I'm sure you have too. And just the undulating. It's like a roller coaster. It's like a roller coaster where you just keep them picking momentum. It's a a super dynamic bike course. It really is. Because you leave the res, now you're just climbing until you get to the top of old stage. And then you're descending through the canyon, which is so breathtaking. And then you're cruising on Nelson, and that's just all wide open space. And then you've got the rollers of 63rd. And And then you've got the wind of coming back on the diagonal like it's a super dynamic uh, 26 miles and challenging even though you've got a lot of downhill and everything like it's a challenging course and then you get out on that shadeless super hot run that along the canal of death yeah (laughs) along the canal of death (laughs) like it's you've come off this ride which is deceivingly hard and then you got to go run a super hot you know no shade run i'm so glad you kept the course the same like didn't change anything there were definitely things that we said you know what when when we took over the race this can't change one through ten but then we said at the same time this is a without limits productions event and we do things a little bit differently than previous race directors have done and i was able to learn from a lot of the previous race directors and i said we can take a little bit from everything they did but we still have to inject our flavor Mm -hmm. and that's funny i mean even a lot of i wouldn't say heated conversations with barry but conversations where we conflicted and said no that's that's not how we do things or that's not kind of the state of the community and state of the sport like it was five years ago I'd love to do it the way you did it, but that just doesn't work anymore. This is where the sport is now. And that's something that thankfully we learned buying and taking over a lot of other people's events. The first couple years that we took over like Cape Cod, we tried to do everything exactly the way the last race director did it. And we quickly learned that's not our style. That's not what works for us. It's like, take a look at that race director, see what they did well, see what the core and foundation elements are. But then everything else, do it our way and do it the without limits way. Yeah, you have you have to have that to be in your f- your fullest expression as a as a race director in a, a race company. People not only come to your races because they like the course, they come because they like the way you run the show. You know, and it's it's I think it's really important to to keep that flavor that you guys have, and it's like there's only a certain amount of things in the world, right? That that are out there to do and and so if you're looking at something you think oh god it's already been done but it but it hasn't been done by you and that's why it's so important to fight for what is true for for you guys for without limits so that you can truly make it your your race because if you don't you're constantly gonna try and be keeping up with history And, and we never from day one wanted to be the company that just did things the way other people did it and copied we said very early on, our t-shirt designs are gonna be very, very outside the box. And we're never gonna put a sponsor on a t-shirt because it just looks like garbage when you have 50 sponsors and no one looks at the logo. I wanted a t-shirt that was a cool design that people were gonna wear. Yeah. 
and, and I mean, you've probably seen it from our New England designs. There's no really swim, bike, run, and your traditional triangle, triathlon designs. It's something that was kind of more inspired by the surf industry, where it's, wow, that's just a cool design that happens to be a triathlon t-shirt. The, t- the shirt this year, first of all, I was like, oh, it's super soft. And you know, we are not into collecting things. So right? now we have to give one away. Yeah, which is, which is fine. <laughs> but I was like, oh, it's super soft. And I was like, oh, it's long sleeve. That's so awesome, because I only have one long sleeve. But it reminded me, the first thing I thought of when I looked at it was the old OP. Remember the old Ocean yep. Pacific designs? Oh, yeah. That's what it reminded me of. So when you said that, like, it's kind of like the surf industry, you totally nailed it with this year's. And you want people to wear the shirt, right? I mean, right. you don't want to give them race shirts where they're like, okay, this isn't cool. You know, I get it. And, and I think so many people, they expect to get the race shirt and they look at it as a bike rack. I'm getting another bike rack. To clean my bike with. Oh my god, we have oh. some triathlon bike <laughs> we do rides. Have <laughs> we have some triathlon shirt bike rides. But everyone has an opinion too, and, right. and it's funny. True. The week before the peak, just last week, I actually got engaged. And everyone, the question started to ask, when's the date? You need to do this for the wedding. You need to do that for the wedding. Oh. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I told my fiance, Ashley, <laughs> I was like, everyone's going to have an opinion because they think they're helping you. And, and they think their opinion's right, but they're not the ones writing the checks, and it's not their wedding. It's not it's, their day. It's our exactly. wedding. Yes. Exactly. It doesn't matter if it's a wedding or a half Ironman. An event production is an event production, <laughs> and, and it's no different. I was like, I can handle this because people tell me how we should run my races all the time. But at the end of the day, they're not the ones writing the checks. Oh my God, you're like the ideal guy to get married because you're not going to be swayed by anyone. I mean, we were just total jerks and we just went and eloped because we were like, no. We're not taking any suggestions and we're not inviting anyone either. <laughs> how, so how do you, so I'm sure people come up to you all the time, like you're saying, so how do you process that? Like someone's like, swim course should be going the opposite way or uh, the pros should start at the end of the thing. Like, how do you take this in? It, in it, moment? it depends how much time I have. Usually I'll give them a quick reason why, because it's a lot of different things they've never even thought about of, well, in, in Cape Cod and in, in Falmouth do the swim course this way. Well, no, there's a two knot current that always goes that direction. <laughs> and that's why that course is set up like a trapezoid because everyone's gonna blow that first buoy, as you guys remember. So if I can, I'll, I'll give them a quick justification mm-hmm. for, that's why we're not doing it that way. Or I'll say, you know what? Other companies do it the very traditional, we'll call it cookie cutter way with sponsors on the t-shirts and, and everything else. That's not our style. and. Maybe this isn't the race for you. Yeah, maybe they're not your athlete and you have to be okay with that. And I think some people miss, and same thing when it comes to planning a wedding, the minute you try to please everyone, you please no one. Yeah. And and that's something I actually learned from Barry. He always said, if we can please 97% of our athletes, we did a great job. Because you're never gonna please everyone. Never. You can put on the best race in the world and I guarantee I'm gonna get five angry emails of people just blowing us up for something and and at this point I laugh I brush it off I used to take it very personally and let it send me into a spiral in the early days of wow we really screwed up and I was like no it was two emails and that's just a very entitled asshole you're never going to please them (laughs) they're going to complain about something and that's something I have to teach our staff about too how did you personally learn it's because I think that's a big thing of course in in it, for anyone who's in that, I think we all are, it doesn't matter what you do, whether it's feedback from your boss or a coworker, or feedback for, from a podcast or an athlete at one of your races, how did you start to move out of that? 
like where you weren't taking it so personally? Was I, there, like, I realized it wasn't life and death that uh, a lot of people are so invested in that criticism that they get from people that it's attacking their own ego. And that when you can finally just let go of that and separate yourself from your production and say, you know what, I'm doing the best I can. I can always get better, but it's never going to be perfect and, and go from there. And it was actually, I mean, I've learned so much from having grown up a triathlete and having been a pro triathlete. When that career ended, I knew I had to pick something else up. And I kind of went in a very, very different direction in life and I started skydiving. And I, I've learned more from skydiving and, and then eventually turning into a base jumper where that became my stress release. It wasn't about being an adrenaline junkie. I, I learned more how to cope with stressful, high tension situations because you're standing on the edge of a cliff and it really is life or death at that point. And you have to come to a place mentally where you slow everything down and you take a step back and the person that's standing next to you, you're trusting your life with because they're checking your gear, you're checking their gear. So I was able to take a, a lot of what those two sports taught me in, into my career where not a lot phases me in terms of, wow, there's last year a forest fire right down the road on our mountain bike course. Here come the helicopters dropping the water. Are we gonna have a race in 10 hours? Well, let's just keep setting up. Rangers haven't stopped us yet, we'll find out. So there's been a lot of situations like that where I've seen other race directors not lose their shit, so to speak, but if they look stressed, their staff looks stressed, and then the athletes by default get stressed. If the person in charge can keep their cool and calm, their staff's going to stay cool and calm, and then the athletes are going to trust that things are going to work out. And it might not always be the best decision. You might have to cancel or modify something like this year with the summer open. We literally, four days before the race, had a snowstorm. Drop a foot of snow in Boulder that week. And our water temperature went from a cool 64 to a 45 degree, unbearable, the night before the race, temperature. And we had to cancel the swim, but everyone just rolled with the punches. In that race, I got didn't get a single complaint because they felt that we communicated the message well, they got an email, a text message, social media updates they knew what was going on and i mean we want our always perfect but uh, moving forward i always tell new race directors like it doesn't matter what decision you make there's no wrong decision but make a decision come to a determination on what you're going to do as soon as possible and communicate it as effectively as possible and then people will be on board it's when athletes feel that they don't know what's going on that they get upset well yeah they get upset they definitely do. BJ's following these Ironman Facebook pages for the races that he's doing this year, and people are, like, freaking out about, is it going to be wetsuit legal, like, eight weeks before the race? It's crazy. So they're already kind of, like, the majority of people already have some kind of anxiety. So if there's, if there's an unknown of what may happen in the race, and then as a race director, you want to call it as soon as possible, but you don't want to call it too early, mm -hmm. right? Like you gotta, how do you find that time? You just kind of like feel into it and we're like, okay. Or do you wait for the absolute like, okay, the like until you just keep going until you can't go anymore and you say, all right. I mean, I grew up when triathlon was truly the wild west that we barely had course marshals out there. We had to follow little duct tape arrows on the road. We swam in 50 degree water or eight foot waves rolling in. 
So I'll try to push things as far as possible, but then you just have a gut feeling of, you know, this is the line. And if you cross the line, things aren't gonna be safe anymore. 45 degrees, that was well over the line. But really it's just trusting your gut. It's having that experience of having done it long enough that you just know. Yeah, yeah. And so what are the future plans for, first of all, Where'd the name come from? Because it's super appropriate now that we've had this conversation and I just see how you work. And I mean, it's been so divinely sent to you, this whole path and doors opening and things coming in. And, you know, you got to hit the gas pedal sometimes, but you're always, you seem to always be willing to be like, all right, I'm going to, I'm on this ride. Like I'm going, I'm going to go as far as I can, I can take it. But what do you see for the future? Well, wait, the question was, so, where did Without Limits come from? <laughs> the name came from the 1998 movie, the Steve Prefontaine movie. There were two movies that came out that year. One, I think, was just called Pre, yep. and the other one was called Without Limits. And I fell in love with the movie and, and what he stood for because he was so outside the box. I mean, he did things his way. He didn't care what people thought about him. He was going to succeed as a runner based on his two legs and, and, and doing things kind of with a rogue rock star like mentality. And I said, well, without our company might not succeed as well, but we're at least going to do it our way and see where it goes. So that was the name. And the future for us is Colorado. I mean, it's, it's a state that I love. We did sell the Cape Cod races because we finally found someone that was going to shepherd them into the next generation and can grow them again. It, it is very, very hard not being embedded in a community to grow a race. You can put on a great production and we were able to put on good races year after year, but we weren't able to really connect with the clubs and, and the local companies. And that's what that's what racers are looking for now. I mean, that's what made Boulder Peak so much fun. You had 30 local companies setting up vendor tents, doing massage, giving out free samples of beef jerky and, and, and whatever it was. And you have to be living and invested in that community to make it happen. And, and I think that's why a lot of these bigger type companies, they struggle at the sprint and Olympic distance. They do great at half and full because it's about putting on an awesome big time production. But the sprint and the Olympic is about the overall experience. It's about when you sign up for the race, all the communication you get to the race day expo, to the small touches on the t-shirts and the medals and everything that goes into it. Being able to call up the race director the night before the race with last minute questions. I mean, I don't like giving out my phone number, but it's something that I've just always known you have to do. It's, it's part of making this a community-based event. I think that's awesome. I think they're pretty much... Yeah, I think that sums it up. I just want to thank you personally for... I've had many, many, many great experiences under your guidance and direction at races and Boulder Peak this past Sunday was certainly one of them. So thank you for uh, bringing it back in its expression with your twist because we wouldn't be, I mean, this is why we drove, you know, 15 hours to get here to race your race. And it was worth every bit. I I think we got to get Kevin Portman out here, our our pro friend. First year pro out. He's a first year pro. And I just think that, yeah, I think he would love this race. And so we'll talk to him about, I know he's coming out here for, uh, is he doing Ironman Boulder? He's doing Ironman Boulder. I think so. Yeah, so um, just keep spreading the word for you. And I mean, not that you need any help because this race is just going to speak for itself and under your guidance, it's going to continue to thrive. So 
we wish you the best oh, in thank the future. You guys. And um, there was a little bit of some rumblings about California. What was that about? So uh, <laughs> eventually, I mean, that's the long-term plan with my fiance. I, I mean, uh, I'm a beach baby at heart and we want to be by the ocean. Yeah. So not anytime soon, but the long-term goal is to eventually migrate that way. So who knows? Well, you, you could see some Without Limits productions right there in your backyard. I don't Yay. think that would be a bad thing <laughs> since I'm a lifestyle triathlete now. All right. Thank you so much, Lance. Thank you, you guys. Sweet. All right, that's it. YTP number 62 in your awareness bank. I hope you guys liked it. You're amazing. Thank you for all the reviews you've been leaving us on iTunes. All right, so the kitty is growing, but we still need many more to hit our goal of 100 by the end of August. So this is going to be super easy to do, all right? Don't even worry about what you're going to write about. Just go to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast on iTunes. Take a breath. Notice the very beginning of the breath and the very, 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 very end of the breath. And then just write from your heart, all right? So I think that's gonna be your mindfulness challenge for the week. Who's in? I'm in, like we're all in, man. All right, we'll catch you guys soon. We've got some great interviews coming up. We will be in Santa Rosa for Ironman, so if you're going up there, let us know. We'd love to connect with you guys, so let us know. Stay awake for the moments in your life, right? No more Dawn of the Dead zombie stuff. The state of our world is requiring us to step up, and we are with you every breath of the way.